Howard, I thought maybe you had sat in on our class this morning. We, uh, we are doing equipping class uh, on Christian beliefs, and we talk about the attributes of God today. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, so a lot of what you shared uh, was uh, some of the things we talked about in our class this morning. Um, I wanted to take a moment to introduce myself if I've not had a chance to meet you yet. My name is Alan Pittman, and I have the pleasure of serving as uh, the senior pastor here, as well as one of the elders. And we are absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. If this is your very first time with us, I'd love a chance to meet with you, or not meet with you, but meet you. Um, and as we dismiss service, I'll be out in the foyer, just swing by and say howdy, introduce yourself. That'd be great. Um, if you are a guest, we'd love to have an opportunity to get you more information about the church. And one way we can do that is, if you don't mind filling out this connection card, dropping that in the offering plate when it's passed a little bit later. And we can send you some emails, maybe contact you on the phone, let you know about a couple things that are going on here. Um, hopefully when you came in this morning, you picked up a worship guide. It looks like this. And on the back side, there's a place where you can take notes. You can see that we're in the middle of a study on the uh, book of Acts, which is in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It sounded like I was saying something backwards. I don't know if I was or not. This is the fifth book of uh, the New Testament. And we're wrapping up our time in there. You'll see that we are in Acts chapter 22. And then at the bottom of the uh, worship guide, you'll see that next week we'll be in Acts chapter 23. So we'll be in 22 and 23 today. Hopefully, uh, you've got a Bible hand. If you don't, there should be one near you uh, in a seat underneath you beside you. Grab that. Use that. If you need a Bible, uh, feel free to take that home with you. That'll be a gift to us, uh, from us to you. And if you know somebody else that needs one, feel free to take it to them as well. One last thing I want to mention, and that is we do have baptism coming up next Sunday. Looking forward to that. And uh, so if you have uh, an interest in being baptized, uh, be sure and submit uh, an interest form online on our website. You can go to the website, you can go to the Hope, and then one of our pastors will contact you about details related to that. So uh, this morning we are starting, um, I'm not sorry, we're continuing a row now. We are going to be looking at how the crowd or the mob of people respond to Paul, who is a missionary of God, an apostle, a follower of Jesus, as he's going around the world uh, planting churches, and he's now ended up in the city of Jerusalem. And he's interacting with a crowd there that turns into a mob, and we're seeing what happens. And so you may have been with us the last couple of weeks. If you haven't, I'm going to kind of very, very, very fast uh, bring you up to speed, and you can also go on our website, our sermons are archived, you can watch previous sermons. But uh, two weeks ago, the first week we looked at this um, topic, we saw that the crowd became angry with Paul. And the reason they became angry with Paul is because they mistakenly claimed that he was against them as Israelites, that he was against them, their people, their temple, and their law, which was completely not true. And because they thought these things, they wanted to kill him. In fact, they beat him because they were wanting to kill him. And the only way that beating stopped was the Roman official, the tribune, comes, intervenes, and arrests Paul. Last week, which was week two of this topic, we see that Paul stops and asks the tribune if he can speak or preach to the mob. And so Paul does that very thing, not to shout them down, but actually to preach the gospel to them. And so we saw last week that Paul retells the story of how his life was completely changed whenever he had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ on his way to Damascus as he was trying to kill followers of Jesus, but he was forever changed by that interaction. And then he began to kind of describe what happened in his life after that. 
Before we read the text for today, we need to read the one verse before it. So I want us to look at Acts chapter 22, verse 21. We read this last week, but it will help us understand the reaction of the people that we're about to read. Acts chapter 22, verse 21. Paul finishes his um, speech or his sermon to the crowd by saying this about God. Paul says, And God said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles would be anybody that's not a Jewish person. So we have the Jews who had the law, who had the temple, and they were angry at Paul. And, And Paul says, But I've been sent by God to go to the Gentiles. Let's pick up the story from there. We're going to read Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 22, and then we'll read little sections at a time, and we'll end up in chapter 23. But let's start by looking at chapter 22, verses 22 through 29. Right after he says that God sent him away to the Gentiles, here's what happens. Up to this word, the crowd listened to Paul. Then they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks or their outer garments and flinging dust into the air, the tribune, the Roman official, ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out, Paul, for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine Paul withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So let's look at this passage of scripture. It says up to this word, they had been listening to Paul. What is this word that they paused and stopped listening to Paul? The word that stopped them was when he said, God sent me to the Gentiles. Their anger is rekindled as soon as they heard that Paul had a purpose to go tell the Gentiles about God. They were offended, they were bothered, they were concerned. And even though the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, we see that they were set up to be a light to the Gentiles, to point the Gentiles to the hope that's found alone in God, the people of Israel for the most part became separate and exclusive. And in this scenario... The, 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 the leaders or the crowd that was there listening to Paul, it's their national pride that superseded following God's plan. You see, their national pride said, heaven forbid that you go and tell the Gentiles. And because of that, you deserve to be killed. It says there at the beginning in verse 22 or 23, it says, away with him in verse 22. This man does not deserve to live. So the, the, the Jewish people are offended at the word of him going to the Gentiles. So I've got a question to ask you. Usually I wait and ask you questions later, but I'm going to ask you a question now. And that is this. What word keeps you from hearing God? What word keeps you from hearing God? In other words, is there an area of pride? 
Is there an area of knowledge? Is there an area of tradition? Is there an area of your way of doing things that, that gets in the way of you hearing from the Lord? What word keeps you from hearing God? The, the Jewish people were stumbling over this idea that the gospel or the hope of God was for the Gentiles as well. So look at verse 23. In verse 23, we see that their response is they take off their cloaks. They take off their outer garments. They begin to shout at Paul. They even, it says they fling dirt at Paul. What is all of this about? Why are they taking off their outer garments? Why are they flinging dirt? There's all kinds of reasons, but let's just say that what's going on is it's a symbol of the fact that they have felt offended. They were offended at this concept of God being for the Gentiles as well. And so they're saying, what you've said is offensive to me and I will display it literally for you to see. I'm lamenting, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm protesting that you would say something like that. There's even perhaps this sense that they're taking their outer garment off so their arms are a little bit loosened up so they can pick up those stones and they can hurl them at Paul or maybe they can punch him a little bit easier. It's like they are angry, they're throwing dirt at him. It's like they just cannot stand Paul at this point. And then in verse 24... We see that again, God used a Roman tribune to rescue or to save Paul's life from the mob. Look at the beginning of verse 24. It says that as soon as this happened, the tribune ordered Paul to be taken back to the barracks. So God is rescuing Paul by a Roman official from the Jewish people. Now, before we think this is all good news, look at the end of verse 24. After he rescues Paul, he takes Paul back to the barracks. And what is he ordered to be done to Paul? He's going to be, and I quote, examined by flogging. Do you know what that means? We're going to be, beat the mess out of him until he confesses. Like this is not a good thing. This is not punishment for a crime. It's to get him to confess. They're going to strap him up to a whipping post and they're going to beat him until he confesses to a crime. Thankfully, that's not a legal tactic here in the United States. But in that setting, it was a legal tactic to extract confessions from people. However, it was not legal in every circumstance. That will help us understand why Paul says what he says in verse 25. It seems a bit random for him to all of a sudden go, Hey guys, did you happen to know that I'm a Roman citizen? The reason he says it, is because just because you lived in the Roman Empire does not make you a Roman citizen. And Paul had a, a special thing that prevented him from being beaten because he is a Roman citizen. And Roman law said that Roman citizens could not be beaten to extract evidence from them. And so Paul avoids this beating that's about to come down on him by saying, guys, I'm a Roman citizen. So the beating that was about to come to him is referred to as flogging. And it's, it's actually the same approach that was used on Jesus whenever the night that he was arrested and before he was crucified where there would be a whip with all these leather thongs coming off of the end of them and there would be bone and glass and things bedded into it and they would bring it down and whip the person. But the Roman citizens, as I said, would be protected from such torture. 
And so because of that, look down in verse 29. As soon as they all realize that Paul is a Roman citizen, it says that they stepped back immediately. They withdrew from Paul immediately because they're like, okay, like I do not want to get in trouble for beating a Roman citizen. And so Paul's defense mechanism does work where he's not beaten in this setting because he is a Roman citizen. A little quick side note, there's this conversation. I, I don't know for sure why Paul, I mean, sorry, Luke chose to include it other than the Holy Spirit led him to, but why is this dialogue between the Tribune and Paul taking place? I'm not sure, but there is this conversation where in verse 28, the Tribune goes, hey, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. You know what that paying a lot of money means? He actually probably bribed someone for this, and the large amount of money is probably up to a year's worth of wages that this tribune had paid. And then Paul goes, hey, but I've been a Roman citizen since birth, so apparently somehow, some way, Paul's father was a Roman citizen, which made him a Roman citizen. So you could be a Roman citizen at least in three ways. You could bribe somebody or pay for it. You could uh, be born into a family of Roman citizens, or you could do something special for the Roman Empire, and it would be uh, bestowed upon you as like a reward for your service. And so anyway, whatever transpired, we know that Paul speaks up and says, hey guys, I'm a Roman citizen, which then stops the planned flogging from taking place. Now, let's pick up the story in verse 30. We're going to read chapter 22, verses 30 through chapter 23, verse 5. It says, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, um, the tribune unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. That's another word for the Sanhedrin, the religious leading party or uh, group of people for the nation of Israel. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers... I've lived my life before God and all day, sorry, all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So here's what's going on. The tribune sends Paul to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish religious leading court, if you will. He didn't go for a trial at this point, but rather he sent him there to get more evidence against him. And undoubtedly it's not told here but undoubtedly Paul went in just like he did every other sitting and he realized hey I'm going to have an audience I'm going to preach the gospel and so he probably was looking forward to stand before the Sanhedrin so he, he comes in he appears before them and he starts his speech there in verse 1 by saying that he is standing and living his life before God in good conscience this phrase good conscience is where I took the title for the sermon perhaps you saw it at the top of the sermon outline having a good conscience. We're going to study that verse a little bit closer here in a moment. In verse 2, we are introduced to Ananias, who is the high priest. And this high priest is angry at Paul and thinks that Paul is lying and thinks that Paul is doing something bad. And so he ends up having someone punch him in the face. Ananias is known as a profane, greedy, and hot-tempered person. And so it's not surprising that he did that. In verse 3, we see that Paul calls, calls him a hypocrite. He says, 
Ananias, you are like a whitewashed wall. He's saying you appear one way on the outside and yet you're different on the inside. He's saying you're claiming to be standing up for the law and yet you broke the law by having me punched. The law that he broke was he didn't allow Paul to speak for himself and he presumed him guilty before a trial took place. And then in verse 4, we see that Paul was close to violating the Old Testament law himself. The Old Testament law said that they were not to revile the religious leaders. In fact, in verse 5, we see that Paul quotes that from Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. The reality, though, is Paul was not reviling the high priest. He might have gotten close. And what I mean by that is the word revile means this. To revile someone is to speak in a highly insulting manner or to slander. He wasn't slander because he wasn't slandering because what he said about the high priest is true, but perhaps he was getting close to speaking in an insulting manner. And what I mean by that is, look at verse 4. In verse 4, it said, no, verse 5, Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why Paul said that. Because, I mean, wasn't Paul familiar with the religious system? Wouldn't he have been able to look at the high priest and recognize that it was the high priest? The scholars have a lot of different opinions on it. Some say Paul had poor eyesight. We see that in some of the letters. Perhaps he didn't see the guy well enough, didn't know that it was Ananias the high priest. Others have said, you know what? It wasn't always the high priest that presided over these meetings, and perhaps he felt like someone else was presiding over it. It could be that he knew that it was the high priest all along and reacted in anger towards the fact that he'd just been punched in the face, and he responds before even thinking. It could be that he is speaking with sarcasm. Oh, I didn't realize that you were the high priest because what he's saying is you're not live, living as if you're a high priest because you're breaking the law. You're doing something that's not good. And, and it could be that he's just saying, hey, I know it's the high priest, but I'm not, not acknowledging it because of the reasons I just stated. But whatever is taking place, Paul sees, you know what? I'm going to submit to the law and I'm going to respect the office of the high priest. And he kind of steps back. All right. Either way, what we see here is this. You and I should speak up for injustice, but we need to be careful that we do so in, in respect and showing some restraint. I want to ask us an interesting question. And here's the question. How well do you represent Christ? And the reason I ask that question at this point is another way to phrase it is similar. And that is when others look at you, could they say, oh, I didn't realize you were a Christian. Think for just a minute. Paul is standing before the high priest. The high priest is not acting like a high priest. He has Paul punched in the face. And it could be that Paul responds in sarcasm saying, you're not acting very high priestly. And therefore, I didn't realize you were the high priest. And so I'm saying that if you were a follower of Jesus, when the world looks at you, would they look at you and say, oh, I didn't even realize that you were a Christian. So just something to think about. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. Verses 6 through 10 says that Paul perceived or understood or knew that one part of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. Those are two different religious leaders within the Jewish faith as a part of the Sanhedrin. Some were Pharisees, some were Sadducees. He cried out in the council, 
Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the res- and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the, Philistine, uh, sorry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and here he goes rescuing Paul again, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So the Sadducees, made up of Pharisees and, uh, sorry, the Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Let me explain real quickly. The Sadducees, they were Hellenized, which means they were very influenced by the Greek culture, the Gentiles. They were Hellenized, wealthy, secular. They weren't really very religious. They were secular Jews, and they loved political power, and they failed to believe much of what's in Scripture. Part of that has been described here. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They had a very limited, they were very liberal in their beliefs. Then you have the Pharisees, which are the complete opposite. And the Pharisees were very strict in their following the ritual law and traditions of their predecessors. And so Paul does something interesting. He describes the fact that he's on trial or he's before them because he's standing firm in the hope of the resurrection. And it's the resurrection that's brought him there that day. And he knew that that would get the two sides divided. And so whenever he did that, then they begin to squabble among themselves. And there's almost a mob developing there, not towards Paul, but, but towards this theological perspective. And then it ends up where some of the Pharisees step up and they go, you know what? We don't see it, this guy at fault. Because the Pharisees were grateful that he's standing for the resurrection. But you'll notice that the Pharisees did not believe that his perspective of the resurrection was accurate because they didn't believe that Jesus had been resurrected. Because what he says here in verse 9, this guy's not guilty. Maybe a spirit, maybe an angel spoke to him. They're not admitting the fact that perhaps Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, had appeared to Paul. So that's kind of what's going on in this inner peace. And then look at verse 10. It says that violence broke out and the tribune is scared that Paul is literally going to be torn limb from limb. Like they're not, they're not ready to beat him up anymore. They're just going to rip his body apart. And so he's ready to remove him so that that doesn't take place. So once again, God chose to use a Roman official to save Paul's life. Let's look at one more verse and then we're going to look at these practical steps that are listed on your sermon outline to apply this passage. Verse 11. After he's been arrested, it says the following night, the Lord stood by Paul, and here's what Jesus said to him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Here we see that Jesus appears to Paul while he's in prison, while he's in the jail cell, and he uses one, it's one word in Greek, but it in English means take courage or take heart. It's used five or six times in the New Testament, and every time it's Jesus that uses those words to encourage the listener. And so he's encouraging Paul, and he's saying, Paul, the end of your story is not coming here, but rather I'm sending you to Rome. And so this verse is launching us into the rest of the the book that God promises that Paul will go to Rome, and so you can guarantee yourself that by the time we get to Act, end of Acts, he'll be in Rome. Now, To understand this whole passage, to figure out how to apply it to our lives, let's look back at verse 1. 
In Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul stands up before the Sanhedrin, and here's what he says. Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What does having a good conscience mean? The fact that Paul is able to say this truthfully gives him great confidence. And you're going to see in your sermon notes, there are four practical things that you can do in your life, like Paul did, to stand in confidence in life. The first one is this, live out your calling. When Paul says, I'm standing before you, having lived out a life of good conscience before God, he's saying, I've been a good follower of the word of God. He's not claiming perfection, but he's saying that whenever he sins, he has sought out to make things right and to right the wrong. And we see an example of that in this very passage where he realizes that he maybe overstepped himself a little bit when he insulted um, Ananias and he backed down from that. And so to say he has a good conscience means he's seeking to follow God. And then ultimately, Paul's able to be confident in this regard because he sought to do all that God has called him to do. And I believe that when he says, I am living my life in good conscience, he's saying, God has given me a task to do. He's given me a calling to live out, and I've done my very best to live it out to this point. And that's why I said that I was on a mission to the Gentiles. I didn't say that to offend you. I I didn't say that to get you mad at me, but rather I'm just simply seeking to live out what God has has called me to do. Last week, we talked about what does it mean to know the will of God. And we said that all too often we make it about ourselves and like what is God's will for my life and what I encourage us to do is not to focus on that but to focus on knowing God's will. And so whenever I say to be confident by living out your calling, I'm not talking about personalizing it in such a way that you overlook the general calling that all of us as followers of Jesus are called to do. Rather, we should live out a life of faithfulness in everyday life, and then therefore along the way, while we might not be called to go to the Gentiles in, in Ephesus like Paul was, we are called to do certain things, but we've got to begin by following him in the general things that we're called to do. I'm leading a group of men on Wednesday mornings. It's called Titus 10, and we're studying different things. This past week, we looked at the idea that we have been given assignments by God. And assignments by God are those things that are entrusted for us to do, the things he's called us to do, the people he's entrusted to our care. And so I want to ask a couple of questions as it relates to you living out your calling, you living out your assignments, you living out the ways of God. And as I ask these questions, don't just simply go, oh man, I'm a failure at these. But rather, as I read these questions, celebrate where God is leading you to live it out faithfully and then think about it reflectively where I need to begin to adjust so that I can live in good conscience before God. Here's the questions. The first one is this, are you living with a good conscience before God. It's just a general thing. Like, would you be able to stand before a group of listeners and say, you know what, I'm living my life in good conscience before God. Is that you? Again, celebrate the areas where you're living it out and reflect on the ways that you need to make adjustments. 
The second one is this. Are you following, it goes right in hand, explaining this good conscience, are you following the clear teachings of God in your everyday life? Are you studying God's Word? Are you reading the Bible? Are you thinking through things with a Christian mindset? Are you seeking to honor God with your life and your choices in general and the clear teachings that are there? And then as you move beyond that into the specific callings that God has given to you, are you living those out in this season of your life and in your life as a whole? And so as I think about the callings that God has on my life, he's called me to be a husband. He's called me to be a father. He's called me to be a pastor. He's called me to be a friend. He's called me to be a disciple maker. There's all different things that I could think of that God has called me to do. My question is, am I following the general commands of his word? And then am I living that out specifically in my life? Paul was able to stand up and say, I've lived my life in good conscience and because of that he could have confidence to stand before these guys as he talked another way that paul had confidence is this and you and i should do it and that is have hope in the resurrection you see paul is confident paul is confident in the hope that is found in the resurrection look at verse 6 in acts chapter 23 in verse 6 he's saying to the people that are listening hey guys i'm standing before you because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. That's why I'm on trial. Everything that Paul did in his life was reflective of the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was killed for our sins, and then on the third day he was raised to life, and because of that, you and I, if we trust in Jesus as our Savior, can have new life as well. It's that resurrection of Jesus Christ that leads to the resurrection of his followers that gave him confidence to live in his life. Now, Paul did not write the book of 1 Peter, First, uh, first Peter did. First Peter didn't write it. Peter wrote uh, First Peter. But the name of our church is found in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps you want to jot it down. We're not going to take the time to turn there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a fairly lengthy chapter. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first five or six verses explain the gospel very clearly. And then he points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which then gives us hope that we one day will be resurrected with Jesus if we're a follower of Jesus. Before we go any further, though, I want to clearly explain the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel says... That you and I are sinners before a holy, perfect God, and there is absolutely nothing you and I can do to earn or keep God's love. That means that I can't be a good enough person for God to love me. God loves me because he created me and wants to be in right relationship with me, or wants me to be in right relationship with him. But sin gets in the way. The only way I can be made right before God is by trusting what Jesus has done on my behalf. Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one, came and lived a perfect life. He didn't commit any sins whatsoever, and yet he willingly took our punishment and our shame and our sin on himself as he stood on the cross and was crucified, taking on the wrath of God so that we don't have to. And then he was put in a grave, and then three days later he was resurrected to life, and because of that he overcame sin and death and the grave. And he made the way open so that we could be made right with God again. 
It's the only way. You can't be a good enough person. You can't go to church enough. You can't pray enough. You can't give enough money. You can't say enough Hail Marys. You can't do anything to earn salvation. The only way you receive it is by receiving it through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And guys, once you've received it, you're still dependent upon the gospel because the gospel that saves you, the gospel, that same gospel maintains you in right relationship with God. So once you become a follower of Jesus, you're not perfect. You're still going to sin, and you can't go, well, God loves me less because I've sinned. No, God loves me the same because my salvation is not based on anything I did, and therefore my maintaining of my salvation is not in my hands, it's in his, and it's because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. So there is hope in the resurrection. So the questions I have for you in this section is this. Is your hope found in the resurrection? Is your hope for life found in the resurrection? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? Do you believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him? Do you look for opportunities to point others to the power of Jesus' resurrection? So we need to personally trust in the resurrection, and then we need to look for opportunities to tell others. You may even want to jot this down. The Great Commission is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And we see that a huge part of a follower of Jesus living out their calling is to go out and tell others about the hope that's found in Christ. My question is, are you doing that? The third way that we can find confidence is by trusting in God's sovereignty. We see in verse 11 of chapter 23 where Jesus appears before Paul and tells him to take courage. And the reason that he can take courage is because of God's sovereignty in his life. Over and over and over again in his life, Paul benefited from God's sovereignty. It started on the road to Damascus. What was he doing when he was going to Damascus? Was he seeking Jesus? Absolutely not. He was going to Damascus to kill the followers of Jesus. When Jesus miraculously appears before him. You see, Paul was saved by the sovereignty of God. He was not seeking out God. God was seeking out him. And so his salvation was from God's sovereignty. Guys, your salvation is not your own doing. We just discussed that. It's because of the sovereignty of God. Therefore, we can have confidence as we trust in his ongoing sovereignty. There's been multiple times that Paul was carted out of town by his friends before the locals could kill him. He had been left for dead literally at least once, only to survive that. He had been threatened of beatings, and people had hunted him down, and yet time after time after time, God miraculously rescued him. He constantly had opportunities to preach the gospel only by the grace of God. There's no other way to see him survive the mob in Jerusalem. The tribune. How many times did the tribune save Paul? A million times. Not really, but a bunch. It's not really the tribune that's saving him. It's God's sovereignty that keeps saving him. Because why? God's plan is to send him to Jerusalem. Therefore, he can't die prematurely. Therefore, God's sovereignty is watching out over him. More than once, God used the Roman tribune to save his life. Then... God used the Roman legal system of all things to protect him by saying he's a citizen, therefore he's not beaten to death. There's no question that God had a plan, and therefore Paul could trust him. The reality is God has a plan for you as well. It may or may not always involve plucking you away from that danger that you're in, but it always involves his love, protection, provision, and guidance in the midst of everything. You see, ultimately, our confidence does not come in ourselves. 
our confidence comes in God's sovereignty. So I've got a couple questions to ask you here before we move to the last thing. And that is this. Does God's sovereignty bring you confidence or consternation? I don't normally have the same letters on words, but I felt like a pastor today, I guess. Consternation is not a word I typically use. I don't know if it communicates to you or not, but consternation means frustrated, annoyance, that kind of thing. So when we think of God's sovereignty, do I go, I wish he wasn't in charge of things. I want to call the shots. Or do we go, you know what? I may not always understand God's plan, God's will, God's sovereignty, but by golly, that is the best place to be. This weekend, my son and I went out of town for a couple days, and before we did that, the night before, I went to go see Mark Heslip, who is still in the hospital this morning, and I saw him on whatever night that was, Thursday night, I think, and as I was praying with him at his bed, the thing that I prayed, this is a dear friend of ours, he's a deacon at our church, he's a member of our church family, we love him dearly, and he's battling with ALS. And as I sat there at his bedside with him, my prayer, knowing that I'm not in his shoes and I don't know what it's like to experience what he's experiencing, but I said, God, we believe that the best place for Mark to be is in your hand and to trust you in this moment. I don't know that I prayed the word sovereignty, but it had everything to do with God's sovereignty. I don't know why Mark is going through through this. I don't know why Kelly's going through this. I don't know why their kids are experiencing this. But I do know this, that God's sovereignty is with them, and that's the best place to be. So whatever you're facing in life, do you see God's sovereignty as confidence building or consternation? I pray that you would see it as a thing for confidence. And then along with that, in what ways may you need to relinquish control in your life to rest in God's sovereignty? Those in my life, which all of you are in my life, but those of you that that know me the best may realize there are times that Alan Pittman likes to be in charge of things. If I was calling the shots, let me just tell you, if I was calling the shots, my Cowboys will win today against the Patriots, they will get to the playoffs, and they'll win the Super Bowl. If I was calling the shots, I'd have a brand new car in my driveway. If I was calling the shots, I'd have a few more thousand in the bank. If I was calling the shots, then my family would always agree with me about everything. If I was calling the shots, then the elders would just always do what I want them to do. No, I'm not supposed to do that. Like We are supposed to be a team as elders making decisions that the Lord is leading us to do as a group, right? In your life, could it be that we all too often want to be in control and therefore we don't trust in God's sovereignty? Because trusting in God's sovereignty says he's in charge, I am not. All right, last one. Another way we can be confident is by knowing that God is not through with you yet. Ron, God's not through with you yet. Gene, God's not through with you yet. Bill, Isla, God's not through with you yet. High school student, God's not anywhere near through with you. Mark Heslop, God's not through with you yet. Mama who's had multiple miscarriages, God's not through with you yet. One who's sitting in this room, you feel like you're unseen. You're like, Al's not even saying my name. Like, does he even know what I'm going through? God's not through with you yet. Family's going through turmoil and upheaval and confusion and anger. 
and addictions, God's not through with you yet. Parents who have kids that are struggling with gender identity, God's not through with you yet. People that are dealing with relationship issues, God's not through with you yet. Those of you dealing with anxiety and depression and just want to end your life, God is not through with you yet. Those of you that have an unwanted pregnancy and you're thinking about abortion, God is not through with that child and God is not through with you yet. God is not through with you yet. As long as you have a breath, he's using you. Mark Heslip talks to every person that comes in the hospital room unless he just feels lousy about Jesus. As long as we have a breath, God can and will use us. It might look different than how it looked in the past, but God's sovereignty has you where you are, and he's not through with you yet. You're like, that's good stuff, but how does it apply to the passage? I'll tell you how it applies. Paul has been arrested. This mob is going crazy. They're ready to kill him. He knows they're ready to like stretch him and pull off his arm. And that's not a good thing today, and it really wouldn't have been a good thing back then. You might bleed out. God says, you're not done. You're going to Rome. When Paul heard Jesus say it, do you think there was a bit of doubt in Paul's mind that he was going to Rome? Absolutely not. Now, did he know what it's going to look like? Nope. I'm going to spoiler alert, close your ears if you don't want to hear it. There's going to be a shipwreck. Paul doesn't know that's going to happen, right? <laughs> Maybe he does because like Paul's like, it's never easy <laughs> as I live my life. But Paul knows that God is not done with you yet. Jesus doesn't use those words, but that's what he's saying to him. Paul, you're not done. This is not the end of the road. It's just the beginning to get you where you're supposed to go. You see, the reason you're arrested, the reason the tribune saved you is because I want you in Rome, and the only way you're getting to Rome is because you're under arrest, and you're going to go to Rome because they tell you it's time to go to Rome. You're going where I'm sending you. I'm not done with you yet. Guys, listen to this. Paul did not receive the details. He didn't know what would unfold. He just knew he was going there. You don't have the details. You don't know how it's going to be orchestrated. You don't know how it's going to work out. And stop trying to do it yourself. It gets you in trouble every single time. My D group and I are reading through Genesis, and we just roll our eyes every time that those early fathers go, here's an idea. How about I get with my wife's slave girl to have a baby? No, that's the wrong idea. Here's an idea. How don't I tell the ruler she ain't my wife, she's my sister? No, that's a dumb idea. The list goes on and on. Stop trying to control things and trust God in the moment. All right. Verse 11, just as you have testified to me or about me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify also in Rome. Do you know what the word testify there is in the Greek? In the Greek, it's martus. Do you know what the word is in English? Martyr. Do you know what the word martyr means? To witness or to tell. And it also means, and you sometimes die. We're going to see that Paul was a martyr for Christ, but God was not through with him yet a couple of application questions and then we'll have a response here's the question do you struggle believing that god is not through with you yet be truthful i even called some of you by name i'm not insinuating hear me people i'm not insinuating that any of the people that i said god's not through with you yet think that i'm just simply wanting 
in as a pastor to remind them, God is not through with you yet. But it could be that for some of us, we could have sin, we could have inadequacies, we could have fears, we could have an age thing, we could have experience or lack of experience, we could have lack of knowledge, we could have past hurt, the list could go on and on, but don't allow those things to define you, allow God to define you, and he's not done with you yet. Are you living out the things that you know he's asking you to do now? Because for him to not be done with you yet means you need to be living out what he's calling you to do now. Are you doing that? I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come on up here. And as they do, I'm going to kind of gear us for the response time. We're going to sing a couple of songs. And during the first song, we're going to have, uh, well, no, we're not. Start to say offering. Offering is in the second song. We're going to have offering in the second song. But in both songs, you can respond as the Lord leads you. Could be praying at your seat. Could be filling out your connection card. It could be sending an email to the church office so we can touch base with you. Could be praying here at the altar. Could be bringing a friend to pray with you. Could be praying with me at the altar. Could be lots of different things. But let us hear God and say yes to him this morning. During the second song, that still same offer is available to you, but we'll also be passing the offering plates. So that's where you can drop your offering and or your connection card. And I just want you to consider this. Some of you this morning, you don't have a good conscience before God, and God's asking you to do something about that today. It could be that he's calling you to salvation, to say yes to Jesus. It could be that he's calling you to be baptized. Specifically, next week we have a baptism. It could be that you're supposed to say yes to that. Some of you have been holding off on joining the church, and God's leading you to say yes to church membership. Some of you need to find a place to serve in the kingdom, and here in the church family, you need to say yes to that. Some of you need to repent of sin in order to live in good conscience before God. Some of you need to begin to trust his sovereignty more. You might, some of you need to remember that he's not done with you yet. All I'm saying is this. We can have a good conscience before God, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done for us. Not because of our hard work, but because of his sovereignty and provision for us. And not because we're washed up or not washed up. God is not done with you yet. Repent of sin, trust in him, and turn to him. God is good. Let me pray for us. Father, I come to you now, thanking you for the reminder of your word. Father, we believe your word is true. And because your word is true, we know that our hope and salvation is found in Christ alone and Christ's resurrection. Because your word is true, we know that you are sovereign and that's something to trust. Because your word is true, we know that we need to be living out the calling that you've given to us. And because your word is true, we know that you're not done with us yet. So, Father, help us to turn from the things and let go of the things that have us bound up thinking that you can't use us. Have your way in this morning. And then as we leave from this place, may we live out the things you've taught us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us if you're able to? Let's worship. Let's sing a couple of songs and respond as the Lord is leading you to respond. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. 
Christ in power. 